Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, where we discuss today's digital revolution and some of the other revolutions happening in the world with COVID-19 and the extraordinary changes that's brought about in our personal lives, our work lives, how we communicate, how we educate, how we experience the world around us. Uh, one of the one of our favorite guests here on Cloud Wars Live, our monthly guest is Chris Lockhead. He is himself a world-class podcaster, Follow Your Different. He's been a best-selling author. He's now got one of the top business podcasts in the world, serial entrepreneur, former CMO. And uh, he is a citizen of the United States, born in Canada, and became a U.S. citizen about eight, ten years ago. And we've had some fun chats about that. Chris, how are you today? And um, do, you, do you come in peace today, or is this going to be a, a, a troublesome episode? I always come in peace. Even when I come to fight, I do it peacefully. <laughs> I just want I just want to fight ideas. I don't want to fight anybody physically. So I always gotcha. come in peace. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Okay. Sometimes so, I'm more angry peaceful than, you know, serenely peaceful, but it's always peaceful. Okay. Okay. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, I, I think that's good. I think that's good. It looks like um, you've got a theme for today around cocoon time. And uh, always some lively thoughts, Chris. And I know you've, you've had an opportunity in some recent episodes to talk about cocoon time, but it would be great to hear you uh, kick off some thoughts about, uh, you know, where this cocoon is and what happens when the emergence occurs. Well, I, I think it's an interesting metaphor. It's, it's one that seems to resonate with people. The HBR, who, uh, you know, I've admired since I was a very young man. Recently, the recent uh, edition has a butterfly on the front of it. And, and so it's, a, it's an interesting uh, metaphor, but um, I think I, like all of us, have been doing a lot of thinking about what does this mean and that we are in some kind of a, a transition. And so I, uh, do you remember the Big Lebowski, um, Bob? Oh, yeah. The movie, The Big yep. Lebowski. Yep. There's a scene where uh, um, the dude is trying to figure the, the, the situation out with the kidnapping. And he says, you know, there's a lot of strands in the old duder's head. Right. And so there's been a lot of strands in the old duder's head lately. And, and so I wanted to sort of share with you uh, how the strands lay them out and how they might connect in some ways. Um, and I, I think, you know, my goals for our conversation today are, are uh, number one, hopefully spark thinking. Um, as you know, one of my favorite expressions is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And I think given we're in a cocoon time, thinking about thinking and what we're thinking about is an important thing to be thinking about. Um, number two, I'm, just, I'm gonna share with you a list of things I've been thinking about. Not everything, but a bunch of them. Um, and I, I wanna encourage people, Bob, to write their own list about uh, what they think is happening right now, broadly, and then specifically in their world, in their business, in their career, in their family, in their community. And then based on the list of things that we think is going on, um, we can begin to then make some assertions or projections and thinking about the future. And so um, that's what's really on my mind, to spur some thinking and hope people write their own list about what their synthesis of what's going on is uh, as, a, as a leaping off point. You know, Chris, along those lines and what those exercises lead up to, uh, design the future of your choosing. I, I think it's always fascinating to hear that perspective about design your own future that you've been really, really pushing on and the future needs you has been one of your other themes. 
But I, I like this here, and you know, I guess some people might say it's obvious. I don't think it is. Where you, you're asking people to design the future, but not only that, design the future of your choosing. Right? Yeah, I think. Um, you know, I think we've all had many ahas in the last few months, um, or many reminders of things that maybe uh, we needed reminding of. Um, and one of them, and you and I, this is a conversation you and I love to have, is um, the future is not given to any of us. Just because today is the way it is doesn't mean tomorrow is going to be uh, the way today was. And in the case of those of us who live uh, in the United States and those of us who live in other democracies that we cherish, um, it's a, as, as Benjamin Franklin reminded us, right, it's a republic if you can keep it. And we just had David Crane on Follow Your Different, and he was a special advisor to Schwarzenegger, and he's now um, a Stanford lecturer and a, and a political, I guess you'd call him activist. Uh, and he did a lot of educating for me about how real change happens. And I was shockingly embarrassed about how uh, unknowledgeable I was about how real change happens, particularly at the state level, and how much more the state government impacts our lives than the federal government. So anyway, we had this very wide ranging conversation about how you drive change and how you really make shit work and why he thinks that there's a very good chance um, some of the, 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 the social movement happening right now uh, might not actually lead to very much change uh, because people don't understand how our government actually works and what actually drives change. And so these things have been you know, very much uh, on my mind. And, and, and as I synthesize all of these things, the net net of it is, uh, our republic is not guaranteed to us. Our future is not guaranteed to us. Uh, innovation's not guaranteed to us. Uh, human rights are not guaranteed to us, right? All these things require participation. And um, our founders expected and, and anticipated that the citizenry would be much more involved um, than I think we've gotten to today. Uh, and so whether it's creating new technologies, creating new businesses, designing new categories, or frankly, designing the communities and ultimately the country and world that we want to live in, it's not going to happen by accident. And it's not going to happen in a positive way unless people who are committed to moving it forward in a positive way um, get engaged. Yeah, Chris, this is, I, I think, one of the, again, one of the, the really powerful messages you always bring to it is um, we all have choices, right? And you can sit back, let the future happen to you. Uh, some people choose to sit back and complain. I should have done this. Why doesn't so-and-so do that? And I think you've really been over the last few months quite intent on this notion of, um, you know, the, the future is not written. It is to be written. Uh, I think, as you put here, by your choosing, and the other side of it is, yeah, there's there's uh, upheaval all around. I think it's interesting, too, as you talk about the magnitude of this, and I'm not in any way trying to downplay the things that are going on today. They're profound and important if they come out the right way. But if you look back through history, you know, some of those things you'll find is mm, guys in ancient Rome writing things like, uh, you know, we've never faced anything like this. You know, there's the people are unhappy. There's unrest. There's folks that feel they're not being treated fairly. There's this, there's that. There's threats from without, from within. We've got to get people, you know, to stop being fat, dumb, and lazy. We've got to get them fired up about stuff. But I, I mentioned in the uh, intro to you coming in here that 
you were born in Canada, you have become an American citizen as well, because I think you probably know more about these sorts of things, these issues about how the government works, where change actually happens. And for you to have had an eye opener from this guy about it's at the state level than the federal level, I think a lot of us Americans take some of this stuff for granted. So I'm uh, very much looking forward to hear about what you sort of want to pound home here and, and get across in a peaceful way, of course. Yeah. Well, the pound I'll, peacefully. I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes on David Crane. Um, and the net of it is um, most of us are focused on the federal government. Um, we know who our federal senator is, uh, who our federal congressperson is, uh, obviously our president and vice president, key cabinet members and the like. Um, and, and that's what we, that's what the news is dominated by. Um, uh, David describes the federal government as an insurance company with an army. And that, that the vast majority of the employees, the vast majority of what uh, he says, upwards of 90% of what affects you and I happens at the state and local level. For example, roads, uh, essential services, power, water, things along sewage, things along those lines. Of course, education, law enforcement, parks, uh, ur urban planning and development, all of these things and, and on and on and on, right? Um, um, uh, gun laws, you name it. Uh, all of these things can be dramatically different uh, state to state and county to county. That's point A. So he's like, isn't it interesting that we all know who our state senator is, uh, who, our, who our federal senator is, but do we know who our state senator is? And I was ashamed to admit, Bob, I didn't know. Um, and I don't know who that says more about me or the senator, but um, it says a lot about both of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not, I'm not proud of my part. And so, and I, I've learned this of late in my own life, right? Um, and, and so that's point A, state and local government affects our lives powerfully. And he goes even further to say, they bet on you not paying attention. They, in the state of California, some of the most liberal leaning um, uh, folks from a rhetoric point of view, if you read their tweets, if you hear their speeches, uh, some of the state elected officials, who take a quote unquote progressive position, uh, vote very conservatively, consistently, et cetera, et cetera. And they, his argument is nobody's paying attention. And, and why has the last several increases in the education budget not uh, resulted in any increase in spending on schools? And point of fact, in California, we've been defunding education for a long time and nobody realizes it. And on and on and on, he opens my eyes to all these things. And the net net of it is, it happens at the state and local level. And at the state level, at least in a state like California, it's very hard to get things done because even if you're the governor of California and he lived this up close when he was working with Schwarzenegger, you need 61 votes to make anything happen. And then he talks about why it's so hard to get 61 votes and why we're over influenced by special interests who actually on an aggregate basis spend fairly small amounts of money to influence politicians, but because they're consistent and they've existed over time, they influence the agenda in a way the average citizen doesn't, and then what can be done? Anyway, all that is to say, holy shit, if you want to make a difference, it's got to happen at the state and local level if it's going to happen. Hmm. So, uh, Chris, I'm not surprised to hear that. I, I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be, and I don't know if you know that, but it's true. 
and uh, I try not to get overly cynical about um, things involving politics, but it's, uh, it's, I find it hard not to these days. And as you said a minute ago, okay, you know, you can blame the dumbass politicians and, you know, all of this and, and all parties involved. Or what about, you know, I think the point you're getting at, which is what about the voters? What about the citizens? What responsibility do we have to raise hell, you know, to play our part, to get involved, to kick ass when that is necessary and to, uh, to throw some of these bums out, or even in these case, these special interest companies that you talk about, they don't even spend all that much, but they have undue levels of influence. There's certainly some actions that we as citizens can take against these companies to try to influence their thing, to let them know that we either do or don't agree with the, 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 the steps they're taking and the policies that they're helping to shape. Yes. The other thing, and uh, this got nothing to do with my conversation with David, um, who I deeply, deeply appreciate. Wow. Um, I, I sort of have had this aha, and actually our relationship, and frankly, the relationship I have with most of my close friends, um, sort of elucidated this point to me. Um, you know, there's some of my friends I agree with on stuff, and there's some of my friends I disagree with on stuff, and most of my friends, it's a combination of both, and some of it's a little more here, there, and everywhere, just like everybody else, I would assume, right? Um, but the reason we're friends and the reason we can go and talk about any of it is because there's, a, uh, there's this aha around a design point of a great relationship, and that is, no matter what we're discussing, we're never attacking the relationship. So when you and I agree, it's great. And when you and I disagree, that's okay too. We want to have a debate. We want to push and pull each other. That's healthy. We want that, right? Um, uh, that's, that's, that's why we have a democracy. That's why we want to encourage a diversity, not just of, of color or religion or, or sex or, or any of those things, but a diversity of thinking, right? Because that makes us stronger. And so why don't we celebrate the fact that um, we're gonna have a discourse, we're gonna have a debate of ideas, and why don't we accept as a design point, we're not going to attack the relationship, right? It's, it, let's have the discussion, healthcare, go, guns, go, whatever, go, let's have it, right? Let's get into it, right? One of the things David says is that we don't get into any of the details, so people speak in these high level things and everybody can go, yes, equality, hooray, right? Or whatever the fucking thing is, freedom. Yes, freedom! What does any of that mean? Okay, let's get, what are we talking about? Oh, okay, let's get into the, where the school budget goes or the police budget goes or where the, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, we don't get into that level. But for us to get into that level and debate and have some, some, some discourse that makes us stronger, I think requires a paradigm that says, hey, look, we're not gonna threaten the relationship. I respect you. You respect me, let's argue, but let's both respect our commitment to building a better community and a better union. And let's try to have the conversation inside that context rather than rip each other up and call each other names and do all this dumb shit that we do. Yeah, and then um, you get things like this these, uh, these days, you know, one of the cliches about it is the political correctness. I think in universities, it is so profoundly bizarre that the places where all those things that you just described, where 
you know, to some extent, young people go to learn, to discover who they are, to discover things about the world around them. They're the most oppressively controlled uh, speech environments in the world. Um, and it's, it was allowed to happen. It seems to be encouraged to happen. So at a very young age, there are a lot of people being taught, whether it's in universities, probably some in high schools about, you know, what you can and cannot say. So I think, Chris, I applaud your, your objective here. I'm with you 100%. But there's a lot of forces at work that are taking relationships in the other direction, which is, if you don't agree with me, you're an ass at best. And you're a, yeah. you're a horrible person at worst. And to ensure that I get to keep that point of view, I'm not going to let you talk about certain things. I'm going to outlaw words. I'm going to outlaw things like that. The most basic stuff. And man, you mentioned companies and special, special interests. Oh my God, are they, uh, right? What companies want, it seems less than anything else is any controversy. So how far down the blandometer of, uh, you know, yes, I agree with everything. Yes, this is all great. It's an all around us. So if you're a kid, a teenager, young person today, you've got a lot of crappy examples all around you that push away from coming back to this extremely healthy thing that you're talking about. I know one of the things that I love most about uh, my dear mom is there were a lot of things we didn't agree on, but boy, you could hash stuff out with her. And at the end of it, we were as close as we ever were. We, and I, what you talked about celebrating these things, I went into it knowing, you know, some of these arguments with her that I was going to, I was going to come out thrashed and whipped a little bit, but that's okay. Cause I'd learned some stuff along the way. And I knew that it was a safe opportunity to have, a free willing discussion to say what I wanted. And, uh, well, and the fundamental thing in the United States is really simple to me. E even the most staunch Republican, would you really want the entire country, state, federal, and local to be 100% Republican run? The most staunch Democrat, you really mean to tell me that you want all of them gone and you just want the Democrats to run everything upside and down? In either case, I think most people, I don't know, I'm guessing, it's just a guess, would agree with me, that would be a horrible outcome. It's the tension between the ideas, and hopefully it's not just two ideas on either end, hopefully there's a spectrum of ideas that we're talking about that pull and push and pull north, south, east, and west, right? Let's have at all of them. But, but it's the tension, it's the discussion, it's the debate. Okay, uh, immigration, what do we wanna do? This monument discussion that a lot of people who have the skin tone that you and I have don't want to wander into. I want to wander into this. I think it's an important discussion. You know, Benjamin Franklin, what, what do we do? What do we do? George Washington, what do we do? Um, Jefferson, what are we going to do? We have, let's have this debate. I don't know the answer, by the way. It's part of American history. The good news is it's, it's, it's being exposed. So these men made wonderful contributions, but they also did terrible things. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dilemma. It's a debate. And some people think it's very clear what to do. Take monuments down. Some people say leave the monuments up. Some people say, we'll take General Lee down, but leave Benjamin Franklin up. I don't fucking know. But I think 
if we were smart and we were us, we would try to have a thoughtful debate and a debate where we can all learn from each other. You know, I, I've learned a lot about things along these lines in the last few weeks, things I wasn't paying attention to. I think that's good. I don't know what the right answer is on the monuments, by the way. I don't have a position, but, but it, you know, you can say, oh, well, you should absolutely take the monuments of such and such down because that one's clear. He was clearly an asshole. Okay, great. Well, Benjamin Franklin had slaves. So was he an asshole too? I, I don't, I, but let's have the discussion, right? And instead, we choose to just fucking yell at each other. And, and I think let's have the powerful discussion. Let's try to listen. Let's try to adopt each other's uh, point of views and perspectives and see if we evolve or not. Um, but let's, let's at least think about the thinking around these important topics. Yep, yep. Uh, the, the closing of the mind, uh, it's, a, it's a frightening thing to see. But uh, hard stuff here. Chris, you were, you were also talking about uh, this future of your own choosing. And I saw you had some ideas here about knowledge workers. Yeah, so there's this sort of very interesting thing going on, right, where um, there's a complete transformation in how knowledge workers uh, work and working from home and working from any, anywhere and the, the destruction of distance that physical distance doesn't matter anymore and, and so forth and so on. Uh, one of the parlor tricks I've been playing in my discussions, Bob, with senior executives, CEOs, entrepreneurs, VCs, you know, people in this sort of the ecosystem, um, the Silicon Valley ecosystem, is sort of say to them, you know, as this thing plays out, what percentage of uh, knowledge workspace do you need? And this is not scientific, so this is just, just in, in conversation over the last couple of months, but a lot of people have been saying stuff like, well, maybe we need 25% of the office space we have. Maybe we need a third of it. The biggest number I've heard is 50%. So if you just look at that and you say, well, shit, what if, what if half the knowledge workers never come back or there's some kind of rotation or there's some kind of new approach? What does that mean? So the next question I asked in my mind, Bob, is, well, how many knowledge workers are there? And I fell over when I found this out. According to Gartner, there's a billion knowledge workers on planet Earth. Well, there's almost 8 billion of us. And, and I don't know, math was never my thing. It was over for me in grade three. But one out of eight people being a knowledge worker on planet Earth uh, sounds like a big number to me. A billion knowledge workers sounds like a big number. And then if you say, some meaningful percentage of that billion, who knows, but some meaningful percentage by definition because they're knowledge workers don't physically have to go somewhere to do their job. And so if what I've been hearing is correct, somewhere between 250 million and 500 million people don't go back to work. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for our companies? What does that mean for office space and, and real estate? What does that mean for all these mega campuses that have been built of late in Silicon Valley? Uh, Apple's got the greatest UFO ever invented. Um, what happens to it? Um, um, 
what happens to all the restaurants and the ecosystem and the gyms and, and everything around those offices. Uh, we could talk about what's going on in cities right now, but this is a, a discussion I don't hear broadly enough. I think there's a chance there's a major transformation going on in cities, but whether there is or there isn't, there's certainly some shit going on in cities that we need to pay attention to that the, um, I'm not seeing talked about at scale in any of the mainstream channels. Um, and so I, I guess the first big aha is, holy shit, Bob, there's a billion knowledge workers out of just a hair under 8 billion of us on the planet. And the people in the ecosystem I've been talking to tell me once this thing's done and we can theoretically go back to work, somewhere between half and a quarter of us are going back. I talked to a, a CEO recently, you know, reasonable size startup, but not a huge company. And uh, she was telling me all the preparations they made to have people come back and the cleaning of the office and the this and the that. And then the, the day that they were able to open back up and she came to the office and guess how many employees came? Zero. <laughs> no, she was the only one. She came for three days in a row. No one else came and she was like, why the fuck do I have this office in San Francisco for myself? It's like the emperor's new clothes, Bob. If you remember the old fable, I'm walking around in this awesome office by my fucking self. And I've, we've sanitized the place down completely, but I'm living in my own sanitized kingdom here by myself uh, or queendom as the case may be. And so, so um, I guess my point in all of this is, I think it behooves all of us to ask the question in a world where potentially a quarter to 50% of knowledge workers don't uh, go to a physical location anymore, or certainly don't on a regular basis, what does that mean for our company? What does that mean for our customers, our category, our industry overall? Um, you know, you think about the service industries that are supported by knowledge workers living in city centers. Uh, here in Silicon Valley, guess what? Silicon Valley is no longer a place. It's an idea. It's not a place anymore. I've talked to CEOs of real companies here in Silicon Valley that are moving out of the state. The CEO is moving out of the state because there's no need to be here anymore. Um, I haven't been to San Francisco since January, but I've talked to a lot of people who live there. Somebody I talked to recently described the city to me as post-apocalyptic. Shit's boarded up. No one's going to work. There's feces all over the place. Um, the, the lower class has been destroyed by the lack of economic activity and uh, destruction of employment. Uh, rents are down for the first time and almost as, you know, since the, the great financial crisis uh, and so uh, San Francisco, no, nobody's walking around. What's, what's going on in our cities? Um, what are we gonna do with the Salesforce Tower? Or, uh, is it, like what, what happens? And look, I know this might sound overly uh, dramatic to some, and maybe it is, I don't know, but we are in this cocoon time. And if, a bill, if, if somewhere between half a billion 
and uh, 250 million of us stop work, or 750 million of us, excuse me, depending on whether it's a quarter to half of us who are knowledge workers don't go back to work. That's a profound impact. And I think it behooves all of us to say, okay, if, if that's directionally where this is heading, what does that mean for me and my career? What does that mean for my community? What does that mean for my company? Um, what does that mean for me as a business leader? Uh, how do I lead when I'm never physically there? If you're a senior executive, if you're a C-level executive, huge part of your job is flying around, meeting people, customers, partners, shaking babies and kissing hands, going to the Singapore office and doing a thing, meeting the press, meeting investors, uh, doing deals abroad, uh, customers come and visit us and we schmooze, booze and cruise. I talked to a CFO recently, Bob, you ready for this? She's forecasting a $250 million decrease in their travel and entertainment budget for the year. What, 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 what? 250 yeah. U million US dollars. What happens to the travel industry, Bob? What happens to the leisure industry? What happens to caterers who's corporate, like, and what happens to that 250 million? Where do they put that money? Does that get invested into R&D? Does that get invested into new products? Does that get invested into hiring new people, into raises? Uh, what is that? That's a shit ton of money, right? Um, and so I, I think my point is, if you start to go through a list in your own mind and you say, what are the mega societal trends? What are the, um, the mega business trends? What are the mega life trends? And start to write them out. I'll give you another one. I think we are now past a point where a company can just be a for-profit making business and take that position. And I think there's swift justice for executives that don't understand this. Uh, most recently in our industry, the CEO of New Relic sent out an, a, an email to employees that said, uh, hey, um, uh, New Relic, quote, New Relic is a public software company, not a political organization. And he sent an email out saying, essentially, stop asking us about our position on all the uh, political uh, and social uh, justice movement right now and get back to work. And he says, we're a company with an urgent need to get back on track. His name is Lou Crine, I think is how you say his last name, C-I-R-N-E, June 19th. Our growth rate is far behind that of our competitors and also behind the growth rates of our cloud providers. History has not been kind to technology companies who do not continue to grow. Technology companies either grow or die. There's no middle option. So this is his email motivating everybody, Bob, to get back to work when employees have been asking about the company's stance on some of these social issues. Uh, well, there's been blowback on Glassdoor and blowback in the industry and um, he might have made a very big mistake here. We had a situation, sorry, do you want to say something? Um, well, he might have made a very big mistake there, but I, I can also understand why in these times, as you described here, when there's not a lot of debates about things and there's a tremendous amount of screaming and demonizing uh, whatever somebody's position is. Now, did he say all that as artfully as he might have? I don't think so. But there, uh, you know, ultimately his point about saying history's not been kind to companies 
uh, to high tech companies that fall behind the growth curve. True. It seems that what you're saying is that future history will not be kind to companies that fall behind the, you know, social engagement curve. Yeah. And I think he's 50% right and 50% wrong. Here's what I'm saying. Here's my aha. As company leaders, whether we like it or not, whether we think it's awesome or, or burdensome, we now have to walk and chew gum at the same time. In other words, it's a, it is about stakeholders, not just shareholders, because um, if you get the stakeholders wrong and the shareholders right, you're probably going to lose your job if you're the CEO. Now, let's not also not be confused. If you get the, state, the shareholders wrong and the stakeholders right, you're out too. And that's just the new game. You said you wanted to be the CEO of a real company. So guess what? You have to be good people. You have to stand up for important things in the world and you have to contribute to society and have a shareholder perspective or stakeholder perspective that's broader than just profitability. And oh, by the way, you got to build a category dominating high value company. And guess what? And this is where I think Lou's got it really wrong. And here's the breakthrough. Aha. It's this idea of a double bottom line. The two things can actually be supportive of each other. Employees want to work for a good company. Customers want to buy from companies that they think care about being, yes, financially strong. I'm capitalism all day, Bob. Woohoo! God bless America. Absolutely. Entrepreneurship, innovation, value creation all day long with a commitment to building a better world with a commitment to truly serving customers with a commitment to being a wonderful place to work that is fair and equitable and just with a grounding and wanting to be a part of a community because companies don't exist in a goddamn vacuum. They exist in a world. And if the world and our people are all fucked up, then our companies are fucked up and it all goes together. And so we have, we have to have a dual mission. How can we not? It's, I think, Going forward, Bob, we're going to look back and go, it was insane that it was ever primarily just a profit motivation. And so, yes, it's time to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to build great high value companies and we have to do it as good people. Well, Chris, powerful stuff. We're going to come back to that. But right now, I'd like to share a word from our sponsor, BMC. In a world that's changing faster than ever before, the biggest challenge for businesses is creating fabulous customer experiences. That objective requires actionable insights and real-time agility from one end of your business to the other. At BMC, they call this the Autonomous Digital Enterprise, and they've put together a set of solutions to help you anticipate what's coming, adjust accordingly, and acknowledge those changes from end to end. To start your journey to the Autonomous Digital Enterprise, visit bmc.com slash ADE. Uh, Chris, you know, uh, I, I spent uh, over the past couple of years uh, a fair amount of time up at IBM's headquarters in Armonk, and there's this one incredible hallway that takes it from sort of the main office building down big windows looking out into the woods down to the cafeteria. And it is sort of like uh, a bit of a history, the 100, 100 great achievements of IBM over the, its first 100 years. And there's a remarkable mix in there of social things, uh, philanthropic things, cultural things that have nothing to do with 
what would classically be looked at as business revenue, sales, profits, share price, those sorts of things. And I, I never had any um, dissonance about weaving those things together. They, they did well, they did good all along the way. But IBM almost, uh, you know, there's been a couple of cases over the last 15, 20 years when the company's almost disappeared because as they were upholding one side of things, they didn't do so well on the other. And um, I don't know, I'd cut that new relic guy some slack uh, because he can't, maybe because perhaps what he's saying there is, we're not gonna be able to do the good things socially and in other places like that if we fall too far, far behind what we're doing as a business. I don't know that company. I don't know where they stand how you know precipitous or not and maybe he's just being a jerk and saying this because he doesn't want to deal with the reality of that you know dual track ceo here where i agree with you he's going to have to do both and you know i could imagine given the climate today that this guy's being totally demonized maybe he deserves that maybe they're doing financially real well and he's using this as a an intemperate way to sort of beat on people to try to do more and ignore his own responsibility. He's going to pay the full price for that if that's the case. But I think Chris, this is one of those situations where the, the emotional flashpoints that jump out so, you know, so hot right now these days with everybody. Um, I guess in a way I would like to say, I admire that guy because he's doing some of what, you have described before, which is, you know, say what you mean. Don't, you know, don't, uh, as a leader, don't claim the mantle of leader and yet come out with such mushiness that nobody knows what you said. You're afraid to take a stand. So that's where I would like us to get to a point where we can look at that. And instead of right away, I'm not saying you're doing this, but my suspicion is in a lot of cores, this guy's being demonized is, does he have a point? Is there something valid to what's going on here? Should I understand this a little better? And maybe there's a story in there for some companies, get your financial you know, house in order here before you start to fully and unconditionally tackle some of these other things. Maybe that's dead wrong. Maybe he's going to find that if you're not doing both sides at it, if you're not as socially conscious as CEOs will need to be in the future, that he's going to lose his best people they're going to go somewhere. And if he thinks the financial picture is bad now, you just wait until six months when that brain drain takes them, you know, down the drain quite quickly. That's really my point. And I, I don't um, disagree with his, hey, um, less learning, more earning. <laughs> Let's get busy here, people. we got a job to do. I, I think that's a very important message. And, uh, and a wise one for many uh, company leaders. We got results to put on the board here. Don't be confused because if we don't, uh, we don't have any chance of creating the future. However, I, I think in, in the situation, if I understand it correctly, and I might not have all the facts, so you know, asterisk caveat. My understanding is his employees were asking for a position on some of the topics of the day and he wasn't willing to engage or not willing to engage at whatever level they thought he should. And so um, I don't know that that's a choice you can make. However, the ultimate choice you can't make is um, no decision. Yes. So, and I can't talk about who because it's totally inappropriate. 
but um, there's an outfit that I know. And um, um, one of the things that has been coming up a lot in Silicon Valley, I'm sure you're aware of is, um, should tech companies sell to law enforcement? Should American tech companies sell to United States law enforcement agencies of one sort or another? And there's some in Silicon Valley uh, who are saying, no, we, we shouldn't sell our technology to law enforcement. There's a big debate about facial recognition and all this other stuff, right? Um, and I know a company where this came up recently uh, in, a, in, a, in a public forum inside the company. And the question was asked, um, why do we do this and shouldn't we sort of stop doing this? In the moment, the CEO took a position. And the position was, we absolutely are going to sell to American law enforcement. And the reason we're going to do that is really simple. We're an American company. And if American law enforcement agencies want our technology to help catch bad people, and they're doing it in a lawful way, as, as set out by uh, we, the people, then we are going to sell to American law enforcement so that they can better do their jobs at protecting the American people. And while this CEO didn't go the next step, the implication was, and oh, by the way, if you don't like it, that's okay. And, uh, and so by doing this, this CEO took a stance, made it very clear, and also shut the thing down. Didn't, it didn't, it's now not a spiraling discussion or debate. There's not a whole bunch of people trying to hijack the agenda of the company. The CEO took a position, took it very quickly, and took a stance um, that could be controversial. So, Christian, among some of the other, you know, excellent notes you had sent over today, there, there's a couple here that I think tie in with what you're saying. It's a, it's a parallel situation. And you're asking, uh, how does work work when you rarely see people? How do you lead when you're never there? How do you build culture when you're never together? They create those, those vacuums and had that CEO that you just described not taken a clear position, then there's a vacuum here. Like, well, who is it? What do we stand for? So-and-so doesn't know, you know, we're not sure. And in these times, a lot of people could think like, uh, well, we're not a good company, right? In the absence of clarity and leadership and decisiveness. And I think just a, a confidence of saying, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And I, I respect the right of people within the room to agree or disagree. And, you know, ultimately you'll have to make your own decisions about what goes on. Um, so the, these shifting roles of leadership that you've described, and I think it's, it's uh, really interesting how you've sort of packaged those together is you, you know, you can't split that out and say, ah, oh, Hey, that, look, that's not me. I'm just, I wasn't hired to be a, you know, the, the culture guru here or something like that. I, I, I agree with you. I think that that will be a failing of leadership, you know, here as we move into the mid 21st century, people just won't tolerate it. And if you combine that with this notion of quarter million to half a million, a quarter billion to half a billion knowledge workers will no longer be commuting to different places. Does that raise their 
uh, leverage of being a free agent with, I can work for any company in the world, any company, any industry here, there, doesn't matter. Like, oh, I, I live in San Francisco, San Jose company's recruiting me. I don't want to have to commute every day. Those, you know, 55 wicked miles won't matter. Worth a damn, a London company might be after you. You know, a company from uh, Sao Paulo. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you might be very excited about that company from Sao Paulo. And, and the other thing, you know, I discussion with some friends and using Facebook as an example, like, well, if, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has spent a zillion dollars building the, uh, uh, the Disney, Disney World Park of offices, office campuses here in Silicon Valley. And if you spend all that money building the Disney World of Office space, um, what if he just mandates everybody has to come back to work? <laughs> and, and I'm listening to this. I'm going, hey, I, I feel you. I'm all about, you know, dictators in business. But um, I, I think you're old and don't get it anymore. I don't think that works. I don't think you can say to a workforce that is, you know, 25 to 45 primarily, hey, fuck, this is how it's going to be. I think they say, hey, fuck, I'm, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. And so if Zuckerberg says you have to go to the Facebook Disneyland and you don't want to go to the Facebook Disneyland and Google says you don't have to go to their Disneyland, then you go to work at Google or, or, or pick your company. And so, so does, the flex, does what Twitter did in initially saying, you work at Twitter, you work anywhere you want, What's the long-term ripple effect of that? And we're already starting to see it in terms of our, in terms of our cities. Uh, a quarter of a million New York residents will move upstate for good, while another two million could permanently move out of the state. And this is uh, according to the good folks at thehill.com. So just, let's get our heads around that. Quarter of a million moving upstate, uh, uh, they mean New York City, and then two million New Yorkers could move out of the state. And the article goes on to talk about how rural Colorado, Oregon, Maine, having upticks in, 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 in property sales, 10% Montana, 10% up year over year, Vermont going through a quote, renaissance, quote, people are buying houses without even seeing them. And so this is a very profound change if I can work from anywhere. Uh, Chris, you know, I, uh, I just one thing along this, I've got homes in uh, Pittsburgh and New York City, two old. Uh, Not to brag or anything. <laughs> no, I, I, oh, so how's the New York compound faring? Uh, I don't know. I haven't been there in, uh, in quite a while. But I was going to say that in those cities, you know, one of those things that you alluded to earlier in the conversation is you had these spectacular old buildings that uh, over the last 5, 10, 15, 25 years, they outlived their usefulness. Those huge old buildings, gorgeous buildings down around Wall Street that were full of banks or insurance companies that no longer exist. So they became residential places and the residential uh, opportunity there was one driven by the fact within, you know, not a too many blocks in any direction, there were tens of thousands of terrific jobs that people wanted to go. So, hey, I can now live on Wall Street in one of these cool old buildings and I can walk 
to my office on Wall Street, which is in a very cool new building, not very far away. But now those new jobs are going to go. What happens then to the, you know, those old office buildings that are now residential buildings when those sorts of things happen like that? Same sort of things has happened in Pittsburgh with these big, beautiful factories, warehouses, industrial buildings, you know, all over the place have been converted to residential because a lot of the young people coming to live here work for Google and other tech companies in around here, they like Pittsburgh for the cost of living. And what if it's like, well, the job isn't really Pittsburgh. I can live anywhere I want. And I wonder if we're going to see that in that, uh, among those two cities and, you know, sort of like the, the face up there, I think Pittsburgh's going to do better, much better than New York because it has a lot of the amenities. So this, this thing that I, I'm getting into all this for is this leadership, right? You know, uh, and you mentioned with, uh, it, with talking with some of your buddies about Facebook is so what if Mark Zuckerberg would mandate that everybody goes to work there? Well, mandates, <laughs> mandates don't work if you can't enforce them. And, uh, you know, whether it's him or anybody realizes that this balance of power has swung over toward these billion knowledge workers, like I'm going to do what I want where I want. And it really goes back to your thing about design the future of your choosing. And wow, have they just pushed a lot of chips over onto those numbers, right? Yes. And and because some people are stuck saying, "Hey, wait! I just built this big camp. That's that's the the future of my choosing." And part of that future is you come working. Well, no, I'm not going to. And Chris, along those lines, I think uh, you know one of the most extraordinary leaders to emerge over in this crazy half year we've been through is Mark Benioff, and. You, you alluded to Salesforce Tower a little while ago, right? Because the guy spent the last several years as part of Salesforce's extraordinary brand that these big office towers in some of the top cities in the world, you know, tallest building, second tallest, logo up the top of the sky everywhere. And Benioff, over the last three or four months, has never hesitated a second about saying like, oh God, if I say like, hey folks, you can work wherever you want, what's that going to do to my you know, to my, uh, my play here, my gambit with these office towers. I, I just, that to me has been powerful, courageous, very visible leadership, no jitter, no hesitation, no backing off on things. So whether CEOs choose to take the sort of tack that Mark Benioff has or whatever the right thing is, I think now is the time here, you know, you were put in this uh, position to make decisions. You've got to make decisions. You've got to be able to lead. You've got to be willing. You've got to be willing to understand the consequences, analyze the consequences, deal with the consequences that you choose to make. And if you think you can do that in a vacuum without really working with people in your organization, understand what they feel, how they feel. Like Workday does these weekly sort of surveys or audits with people, and they have data now to understand how people are feeling about things. It's, whole way through. So this, uh, the data driven CEO decisiveness is part of it. And the other side of it is armed with that data. Don't just sit there and be a mush head. You got to make a decision. This is what you're in the job for. He or she is there for a reason. They got to do it. But I, I think that it would be very interesting to continue to hear from you over time about who is this new leader? Uh, how do you lead when you're never there? How do you build culture when you're never together? Pretty cool questions, Chris. Yeah, and I'm not proposing to have all the answers. I, they, oh, yes, you just, are. Yeah, right. 
but I think they're very, very important questions. Uh, another one I love to sort of deal with those moment by moment, sometimes rapid fire decisions that many business leaders are being faced with right now is, um, if I was a legendary leader, what would I do right now? If I was a legendary leader, what would I do right now? If I was somebody who was deeply respected and admired as a leader, what would I do right now? If I was a good person, what would a good person do right now? What's the right decision right now? And, and I, I think we have to try to be guided, um, try to be guided by that. And if we may, if we don't ask, if we don't stop and breathe in a moment, um, there can be swift negative implications. We'll see how this thing at New Relic plays out. Uh, we had a situation here in Santa Cruz over the last few weeks that just played out that was shocking. Um, one of the number one top high-end restaurants in town called Alderwood had this situation emerge. Uh, and the founder of the place, very high-end steakhouse, gorgeous place, spectacular, uh, had been adopted by the community, um, spent tons of money building this place. And uh, the guy who owns it is a doctor and an entrepreneur and a scientist and one of these, you know, absolute genius type guys. And um, anyway, long story longer, here's what happens. Um, an Alderwood employee is having dinner there uh, in a booth next to a group with customers having dinner there. And the, the thing is separated with the plexiglass and all the sort of COVID protections that we're all trying, trying to deal with here. Anyway, the, the customer group kind of gets a little drunk. And before you know it, they, I, I, if I understand the story correctly, it's just what I read, um, knocked the plexiglass over a couple times. And there was some back and forth. And then some words started to happen after the second or third time. They sort of did this in a bit of a drunken, uh, you know, irritating way. Um, and then after some words went back and forth, they, they purposely did it. And things escalated. And before you know it, um, you know, punches were thrown and horrible things were said. Um, there were apparently some racist marks made by the customer and or his group of people uh, toward uh, the employee who was a person of color. So all this happens, right? Cops get called, blah, 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 blah. So what does the owner of the restaurant do? Well, he makes a decision quickly and says, we're banning the customer and we fired the employee because we don't want bad behavior. We stand against violence. Well, then it comes out that the customer was belligerent and the customer was drunk. And most importantly, the customer uh, very loudly on tape, iPhone or smartphone video uh, says some pretty horrible racist things to the employee. And when that happens and that comes out, 50% of the employees of the restaurant quit. Their social media gets bombarded uh, and they end up shutting the business. And now their website's down. The social media accounts are down um, and nobody knows what the future of the restaurant is. And this was a restaurant that was working hard to come back. Curbside pickup and modified their menu. And you know, was, this, this was not a, an outfit that had already given up and was opening up and then all this stuff happened. And the, the tinderbox uh, social situation that we live in now caused this to happen. And um, and now it's probably going to cost that entrepreneur of the restaurant. Decisiveness requires also that you know what the hell's going on. Um, 
I could understand somebody, the, the employee being, uh, you know, hey, you could say we're against violence, right? Okay, good. But, you know, if somebody gets plexiglass thing pushed on them a few times, th there's a point at which, you know, it's, it's defensible. Anyhow, hindsight 2020 and all that. Sorry to hear about it, but I think that is going to be a lesson, you know, for more and more people here, you know, understand what's going on. But at least I'm glad the guy, the restaurant owner, uh, you know, put at least some of the blame on the customers. Uh, it, it, it gets, it's an easy choice, clearly, but uh, I think there's a lot of folks still that would, you know, just say, well, we got to protect the revenue, whatever, at whatever cost. That's not going to work anymore. Well, and the mistake he made here was a clear one, which is um, he wanted to act fast and take a position, which is what strong leaders do. Uh, and this is, I think, the challenge of the day. So on that dimension, look, I don't, I don't know this guy from a hole in the wall. If he walked in the room right now, I wouldn't recognize him. But the tone, he seemed to be trying to come from the right place. What he missed was the whole racial component of this. And I don't know whether he knew that and ignored it or didn't know it when he made the decision to kind of sort of treat both the customer and the employee equally. And so, of course, the hindsight answer is a clear one, which is to say this unfortunate incident happened. Law enforcement was called. We stand against violence and, and racism of any kind. We're working with law enforcement to figure out what happened. And uh, once we do, we'll let you know. And until we do, the customers ban and the employees on paid leave until we can figure out what actually happened here. Right? I think the community would have accepted that. Instead, he made the decision to n n go all the way and all the yeah. way quickly, and maybe he was trying to do the right thing. I don't know. Maybe he's a racist asshole. I have no idea, but he did what he did, and it ended up where he ended up. And so I think this in this tinderbox cocoon, this challenge we all have is the world is expecting us to take a position. The world is expecting decisive leadership, and at the same time, um, ill-advised decisive leadership is going to backfire in a way that could cost you your business. And so here's what I think this means as a three-time public company CMO. In the old days, when an unfortunate situation, whether it was a bad quarter or a bad incident at the office or whatever it was, when you had bad news, this sort of in, in the corporate communications world, uh, the paradigm was we find out what, the, what happened, get the facts. Then we find out what our strategy and plan is to remedy the situation. And then we communicate effectively. This is what happened. This is our strategy and plan. These are the actions that we're taking. And, and, and the implication, the, under, the unspoken uh, truth in, in business communications, and frankly, in, in most, uh, best I can tell, government communications is, we sort of don't come forward until we got that shit figured out. Well, today you don't have that option. At a minimum, when something happens, you have to be visible. And so the question is, what do you do and what do you say when you have to be visible? And that's a tough decision. And what I'm saying as a three-time CMO is, at a minimum, what you have to say is, assuming it was a negative thing, this is an unfortunate thing that happened. We're digging into it. Uh, we want to do what's right and take decisive action, but we also want to do this in a thoughtful, fact-based way. 
we'll get back to you ASAP. And I, in some cases, you may only have 12 hours. In some cases, you may have six hours. In some cases, you may have three days. It depends on the situation. But you, there is no option called, hey, no comment until we get this thing figured out. That does not work anymore. That's the only thing I know for sure. <laughs> yeah, no comment's a big, loud comment. Yes, and a lack of transparency will make people lose their minds, and I think rightfully so. Well, brother, lots of good ideas today out there, Chris. Thanks for raising a lot of questions, good things. The cocoon time. All right. All right. Christian, last word, final thought. I know you just gave a good one there, but... Anything you want to close with? I think um, we can choose to have agency. We can choose to have dominion over the future, or we can choose to treat the future like we're a victim of it, or choose to treat the future like it's the weather, like no matter what we do, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And so um, uh, while I relate to the defeatist feelings, because <laughs> under pressure and crisis in our businesses, in our social structure, and obviously in our health care, it can be easy to go to a place of despair. And I have been to that place, and I'm sure I will go back. That said, I think the more powerful place to, to stand is a place of dominion, is a place of agency, is a place of creation. Um, and, and so I think now is the time where we ask ourselves, if I was a legendary leader, what would I do? How can I be, give, given my assumptions, given the list of things that I would, if I sat there and did the exercise, what are the mega trend things that are changing? What are those things that are changing, affecting my family, my life, my career, my business, my category, my industry? And then as I begin to grapple with understanding those things, how can I be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous such that we design and dominate the categories of our future? Right. That to me is the question to stand in a place of dominion, to stand in a place of agency, to stand in a place of creation and to decide to be a person who is going to take an active role in creating the future of our choosing, whether that's on the political and social front or in the business front or in education or in any other in any faith based area, whatever it is. But I do think now is the time to get clear about what we think is happening, to try to understand this cocoon time as best we can. And as we do that, to try to, to, try to think about how we can have um, power uh, in creating the future of our choosing. Beautifully said, Chris. Thanks. Uh, good stuff as always. Uh, follow your different. Check them out, folks. Um, Chris, thanks for being with us as always. Thank you, brother. Wonderful, wonderful. Folks, thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. As Chris just said a minute ago, radical generosity is a good thing these days. I hope there's room for it in everybody's life. We look forward to seeing you again soon. So long.